Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. And welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the antinomianism of Fritjof Schuon. I know that's a long word, antinomianism. It's also related to the topics of perennialism and traditionalism. We'll explain all of these as we get into our interview. My guest today is Charles Upton, former beatnik poet and now author of more than 20 books on the traditionalist movement. They include Cracks in the Great Wall, the Science of the Greater Jihad, The System of the Antichrist, Truth and Falsehood in Postmodernism and the New Age, Vectors of the Counter-Initiation, The Course and Destiny of Inverted Spirituality, The Alien Disclosure Deception, The Metaphysics of Social Engineering, and most recently, The Way Forward for Perennialism after the antinomianism of Fritjof Schuon. Charles Upton is based in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's a pleasure to be back from wherever I was. This is, I don't know, our fifth interview, I think, at this point. We're going to look a lot more deeply into some of the questions we've already touched upon, the nature of traditionalism, the nature of perennialism, and in particular, a, a person who was at one time your primary teacher, Fritjof Schuon. Yeah, my primary teacher um, on the philosophical level, you might say, he was never my Sufi sheikh, so he wasn't a teacher in that sense, but in, in terms of, of my intellectual life, he probably had more influence on me than any other single writer, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that influence. I mean, it, like, as they say, changed my life. When I did a Google search on Fritjof Schuon, because he was not a figure I'm familiar with, I was surprised to discover something like 300,000 entries. He's very clearly an important intellectual figure, but I, I know that many of our viewers will not have heard of him, will not even be familiar with the traditionalist movement that you and I have talked about now so many times. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's true, because... The traditionalist movement, uh, there was an ambigu ambiguity there. I mean, it, it, it styled itself as, as something, you know, for, for, for the few and the elevated, you know, for the spiritual intellectuals. And yet there was a great desire for uh, those ideas to get beyond that small circle. So there was a tension back and forth there. Well, I mean, Fritjof Schoen at one point was certainly the sheikh, um, which is the Sufi term for pretty much guru of uh, um, Houston Smith. So, you know, he was, he was uh, strictly a follower of Schuon for some years. So, so anyway, well, the, the traditionalists are said to have been founded by René Guénon, who was a, a French metaphysician who died, I think, in 1950, 51, something like that. 
And uh, the other major influence on the development of the traditionalist school was uh, Ananda Kentish Kumaraswamy, who was uh, uh, a well-known at one point um, uh, Anglo, Anglo-Indian from Sri Lanka who, who wrote on traditional art and finally moved on to metaphysics and did some wonderful books. So, um, and uh, René Guénon's career, if we, if we can do it quickly, he, he, was, he was a Catholic as, as people were in France in his time, you know, early in the 20th century. But at the same time, he looked at Catholicism and he says, I think there's something missing here. There's an esoteric dimension that isn't, you know, is no longer in evidence. Uh, so so he, he searched every, every esoteric and occult group available in his time and went quite far in some of them. You know, it, it was the neo-Gnostics and the Martinists and the Theosophists. And, you know, the list is, is, is very long. And uh, he came out of that period of, of investigation saying, look, these, what's going on in this world of vaguely, let's call it vaguely occultism, uh, is, is not just useless, it's dangerous. <laughs> you know, it, bad stuff is, you know, dangerous stuff is going on there. I mean, he, he saw the beginnings, I think, of the kind of Satanism we're seeing come out of the closet now. And, um, but, but then, then his studies it, at one point or progressively shifted toward looking at the major world religions and, and what was the esoteric center of the major world religions. You know, I mean, if you go as far into, but, you know, it's pretty much on the surface in Buddhism. In, in Islam, you have to go, you know, in, into the world of Sufism to find it. In Christianity, um, unfortunately, he didn't know much about hesychasm, which is Eastern Orthodox contemplative spirituality, you know, a, a, a formal path, which is in, in form very much like Sufism, actually. He didn't, unfortunately, didn't know a lot about that. Uh, you know, it's, it's like... As, as I will have to say also about Houston Smith, he was great speaking about all the other religions, but when he, when he was speaking about the religion in which he was raised, which was Christianity, well, you assume, well, of course I know about that. I was raised in that, you know, but not necessarily. That, that, that's that's the, the, the one he understood perhaps least, you know. And, and so there's a little bit of that in, in uh, Guénon. I mean, he, he tried to, he dialogued or attempted to dialogue with Jacques Maritain, the, the well-known neo-Thomist uh, Catholic uh, writer. And, uh, but finally, he, he, he determined that, well, uh, and what he wanted to do is actually find some kind of, something like a Christian Sufism within Freemasonry. And, and he said, you know, perhaps Freemasonry could be the esoteric center of Christianity that, that, that he felt was missing. And, and he tried his level best most of his life to come up with something in, in that regard and didn't really succeed. He wrote for both Freemasonic and anti-Freemasonic journals trying to, trying to create what he needed. Um, and so finally he said, well, I, I, I need a, re, a, a, a spiritual path that's legitimate. So I'm going to become a Muslim. And uh, he, he took Sufi initiation and he moved to Egypt and lived in Egypt for the rest of his life as a traditional Muslim. So that's pretty much his, uh, but, but he, he was a major intellectual force in France. When he died, even after he'd moved to Egypt, uh, all the radios came on say, uh, and said, uh, 
we have sad news. Uh, Rene Guignon has passed away. Let's have a moment of silence for the great philosopher. So, you know, he was he had that position. So, so uh, but, but um, in one way of looking at it, his major successor, and there's other ways of looking at it, his major successor was Fritjof Schoen. Um, they had disagreements. Schoen wanted the mantle of Guignon. Guignon didn't quite want to give it. But, you know, that's that, that, that's a, you know, a complex area we don't need to get into. But Schoen, uh, when it came to Christianity, he came along and said, look, Christianity is, is not lost its, its esoteric dimension. The esoteric aspect of Christianity is, are, uh, is, is the sacramental order. The sacraments are esoteric Christianity. And, um, uh, and you know, the, the, the three levels of initiation are baptism, confirmation, or which is called chrismation in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and the Eucharist. Those are, and those are, uh, uh, um, correspond to the three classic levels of the mystical path, which are purgation, illumination, and union. So this is what he said. Um, later on, he had problems with Christianity. <laughs> he was not consistent in a lot of ways, but he was right. Uh, he was writer about Christianity than Guénon, as far as I'm concerned. Whereas Guénon was, was the guy you have to turn to to learn about the counter initiation and, and what and what um, you know counterfeit spirituality is, and what subversive spirituality is, because he uh, he explored those areas very deeply. And in fact, he said, "I'm not fit to to be a spiritual master because my soul has been damaged through my years with occultism." And, you know, and, and getting into magical conflicts with, you know, with, with the forces of evil and all of this. And he said, you know, I, I survived, but I did not survive intact in the way that I could really guide anyone else. So that, that was, um, whereas Sean certainly believed he could guide people. And, um, so he became through some method or other a, uh, a sheikh of the, um, Shadali Darkawi Alawi lineage. Um, and there's controversy about whether he was ever really appointed sheikh or whether he appointed himself. And this is a whole other story. So, um, but what, what perennialism, you, you, you can talk about tradition. This is the traditionalist school and the other writers in that school. I mean, Schoen was able to bring together an amazing group of people, including, uh, Titus Burkhart, Martin Ling's, um, Seyot Jose Nasser, who is still with us, still, you know, and um, Houston Smith at one point, and uh, Whittle Perry and Marco Pallas. It's just a, a, a list of amazing spiritual luminaries that he was able to bring together. So as an intellectual influence, that he, that he, he, he elevated the entire discourse on comparative metaphysics and comparative religion to a higher level than anyone has seen. And it was such a high level that it's very hard to see the, the, the contradictions, which there are they they are few, but they are very, very you know serious uh, within his within his writings. So, um, so Fritjof Schoen and, and you know he he started out with uh, uh, leading a Sufi circle in Switzerland, and then he moved. To the United States, to Indiana, to Bloomington, Indiana, and um, 
basically, you know, he, he uh, created a scene in Bloomington, Indiana, which, which was under the umbrella of a, of a supposedly a Sufi order, but it was not, did not follow uh, either traditional Muslim norms or traditional Sufi norms. For example, nude dancing was one of the major features of it, you know, which might, might have been very nice and it might have been helpful to some people. Who knows? Although one, one must be suspicious as I am, but I'm, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to say who knows why people do things and what they're called to do and, 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 and what they need spiritually at a particular time. Who knows? That's not, not for me to judge. But you, you can clearly judge and say this is not allowed by any um, a school of, of of the Muslim Sharia, you know, and and so he, there was a, he had a tendency to claim that that he was entirely orthodox and in line with the Sharia because orthodoxy was very big in, in his in his writing. You know, we, we we're we're looking for the orthodox spirituality, not heterodox occultism and stuff like that. And yet, uh, what he did was not orthodox, uh, you know, and, and, and here you can simply say, well, here's the laws it's written down and here's what he did. And they don't they don't connect. So, you know, if I have a problem with uh, Shuin, you know, I, I would not, um, you know, judge him in terms of, of sexual morality. You know, he, he had four wives, uh, some of at least two of which, two or three, I forget, were married to other men for a while while he claimed them as wives. And th this doesn't go along with the Sharia either. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't judge him in terms of sexual morality, because how do I know? I don't know his intent. I don't know his soul. Now, this is a big thing in, in Islam and Sufism. You know, you, you, you say, may God keep his secret. You do not judge another person's, uh, you know, relationship with God. Um, you know that there's there's a phrase which is very common uh, in Islam. <clears throat> they say, "May God, may God keep his secret." So may God keep his secret, and, and I don't need to know it. Um, also, an important principle in Islam is, is acts are judged by their intent. So I don't know his intent. I can't. You know. Um, on the other hand, when 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 he claims to be doing something. And he's actually doing something else. That, 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 then you can compare and you can say, well, these don't add up, you know. So uh, the element of dishonesty is, is more more concerning to me than the element of sexual morality, which perhaps should be concerning to me. But I don't want to go there because you know uh, none of none of us are perfect in that regard. <laughs> so, but in any case, I want to say. I think everybody who is interested in metaphysics, comparative metaphysics, comparative religion, and who really needs an intellectual approach to spirituality, not everybody does. And I don't think the intellectuals are the higher spiritual caste. We're the intellectuals. The, Schoen would tend to say, we're the intellectuals, we're the higher caste. I don't say that. I'm just saying some people need that. If, they, if you don't have, have, have a, a rigorous intellectual understanding of your faith, you can't maintain your faith. So, so for those people who need it, Fritjof Schoen will elevate your level of understanding of metaphysics and, 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 and comparative religion to a, a higher level than, than you have conceived of before. It's amazing what his books can do. So I would suggest that anybody who is interested in, in these things read everything he ever wrote. 
Just don't read looking for something to believe in. Read understanding that that there are controversies about him, and that the and, and the controversies. And but but you will not understand, not be able to understand his contradictions or his uh, you know errors if if errors they are until you uh, uh, assimilate his perspective. He has to teach you how. To criticize him, otherwise, you know, you 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 will be you will be clueless, you know. Uh, so so, and, and I have found anyway that, that that assimilating his luminous doctrines, and then realizing, and yet, and yet, this is a contradiction here, isn't it? You know, and things like this, and you look at his his actions, you say, well, you know, and 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 so, so th there are two courses of Virtue of Shoe, and the first is the course of, you know, the, the neophyte who says, I just want to learn what this great man knows. And then the next course is saying, now that I've learned that, maybe um, a critique of Fritz of Schoen, respectful and yet um, uncompromising when necessary, uh, can really uh, be the next phase of, of what we learn from the works of this man. Because, you know, that, that my period of, of, of doing, you know, a critique of Fritjof Schoen um, was as, um, as important to me as, as the time when I just, you know, imbibed him. So, so I go out and buy all his books and then, <laughs> then you can get back to me, you know, and say, tell me, tell me how they, they affected you. Cause he, he, he was definitely, you know, an unparalleled spiritual genius. And, you know, like geniuses, you know, particularly artistic geniuses, they, they will have a dark side, you know, right? So. <laughs> well, in your recent book, in the subtitle, you refer to the antinomianism of Fritjof Schuhen. Uh, let's define that word uh, for our viewers. I think many people are puzzled by what such a large word really means. Yeah, well, antinomianism, it, it uh, comes from nomos, which I think is related to the word for name, but it means law. And antinomianism is the idea that there are those of the elect of the chosen who form a higher spiritual caste, and the law is not applicable to them, whether it be the Muslim Sharia or any or laws of morality or whatever, you know, considered to be human laws are not applicable to them because they are beyond good and evil, as we've heard that phrase a lot. And uh, some of the Gnostics of late antiquity uh, were antinomians in that sense. You know, some of the Gnostics were, were, were strict ascetics, more strict than the Orthodox Christians. They would starve themselves to death, you know. Uh, uh, other uh, of the Gnostics were antinomians in the sense that they said, you know, you know, co commit sins because this world has been created by the false, the false demiurge and the, the, the way to, uh, you know, to um, oppose him is is through opposing these these moral rules that he's laid down. You know? And, you know, it, this is a very common attitude that, that you get in. Uh, uh, religious streams that end up being considered heterodox in terms of a major tradition. You know, this is, this happens a lot, you know, you know, it's like the, the crazy wisdom guru, 
you know, can do crazy things, but he's, you know, Gurdjieff, obviously, was pretty antinomian, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, but what's, what is the, is the theory of, of, of why, you know, someone who's of the elect can um, ignore the law? Well, theory might go like this. It is a true metaphysical principle that I believe that the intellect is higher than the will. The intellect, in, in, in the higher sense of the intellect, means the uh, ability, the faculty that looks upon truth directly with the eye of the heart, just like the eye sees light, the eye of the heart sees truth. And, and this, this is what in, in um, uh, Thomas Aquinas in the scholastic Thomism is called intellectus in Latin, whereas the lower level of, of what we call intellectual is ratio, which is the rational mind. There's the direct perception of truth, and then the rational mind takes what uh, the direct per perception of truth sees and draws conclusions from it and argues on the basis of it like this. So... Um, so the idea, okay, that the, the intellect has to be higher than the will because without the intellect, the will will not know what to will. And the strength of the will, the power of the will is certainty. So if the will conforms itself to, 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 to what the intellect in the higher sense knows with absolute certainty because it's seeing it right before its, its, its heart eye right now, it sees it, it knows it. And, and if the will follows that kind of certainty, it has great power because it's not divided. It doesn't say, well, maybe it's this or maybe I should do this. Whereas if the will does not follow the intellect in that sense, it's going to have to follow something to figure out what to will and, and what's it going to follow. The various impulses, which, uh, you know, we call the passions will pop up and says, well, why, don't you, uh, why don't you follow, uh, you know, making money? Why don't you follow, you know, indulging all the lusts you can possibly imagine? Or why don't you, why don't you follow, uh, you know, getting even? You know, follow, in other words, these, these various passions will come up and, and, and the, you know, and, and call to the will to follow them. And the, the, when this happens, the will will become drained and, and become divided and not know what to do. So, so this is why the will... Uh, must, if it's going to be going to fulfill its function, it must follow the intellect. It must follow intellectual certainty. And so since the intellect is higher than the will, the will is the servant of the intellect. The will submits to the intellect and thereby finds its true grounding, its true, its true value, its true uh, purpose. Um, okay, that's the way it goes. But this can be misinterpreted. And the way it can be misinterpreted is, is it's possible to say, well, since the intellect is higher than the will, you know, I identify with the intellect. I am, I am the intellectual man. I am the Gnostic, you know. And these other people who don't understand what I understand, who, 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 the eye of their heart is not open, they follow the will. They're, 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 these are the voluntarists or the passional men who follow the will. And so they're the ones who have to be under the law because because they're, they're full of passions and they, and they need to be reined in by the law. Whereas I'm beyond that because I'm the intellectual man. As if the intellectual man does not even have a will, which is not true. The will doesn't disappear just because you know you're you're 
you have understood intellectual things that are higher than the will, the will is there and it has to be, has to be conformed to what the intellect teaches it. But it's possible to say, well, all of that is for the lower men. You know, I don't have to, you know, I can do whatever I want is what it finally comes down to. And I can do whatever I want is not really a very Gnostic or intelligent thing to say, because we know what happens when people who take, take that attitude at one point, uh, it causes problems. So, so uh, anyway, that's, that's how antinomianism grows up. As, as my wife Jenny pointed out yesterday, there's, there's, a, there's a third um, uh, possibility. It, it is possible that the, the, the one who, whose, eye, the, 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 whose heart eye is open uh, will see situations, and of course will see situations in a much different and more comprehensive way than someone who, who does not have that faculty of, of spiritual intelligence open. And so that person may end up doing things that look to people who, who are in, entirely involved in following the law as, as a crazy thing that, 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 that is very destructive, you know. Uh, why did you do that? And this, this is allowed for in the Quran itself, in the Surah of the Cave, in the story of Moses and Hezr, which is a very famous story in Sufism. And uh, Hezr is the, the, the immortal prophet, also known as the Green Man, who is the patron of the Sufis. Now, the Quran does not use that name, but, but uh, the story is that, that, that Moses uh, encounters a mysterious master. And uh, Moses recognizes that this master knows more than he does and says, all right, you know, I, I, I want to follow you as, as, as my guide. And, and the mysterious master says, well, I don't think you'll be able to do it. <laughs> you, you will not be able to stand me. I, I will freak you out so bad that, that, that you will not be able to stay with me. And Moses says, oh, no, no. You know, I, I, want, I want to learn. I want to know more than anything, so I'll stay with you. So they go on this journey, and, and the, the mysterious master ends up committing these crimes or doing these crazy things. In one place, he, um, you know, uh, he, he uh, gets to a place where there's some fishermen, and, and their boats are tied up, and, 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 and he, he just, you know, busts a hole in the bottom of one of the boats so it sinks. You know, and then I think I think several of the boats or the another point he comes and there's a young man who seems to be doing no harm and he just kills. Him. And Moses says, wait a minute, I can't I can't follow this anymore. You know, I mean, I am Moses and, 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 I, and I came up with the Ten Commandments of what you're supposed to do. Thou shalt not kill. I can't I can't go along with this. And, and the master says, who is identified by the Sufis with uh, his. It's hard to pronounce, pronounce that word says, well, I told you you couldn't stand my actions. But now, since, since our, our, our time together is an end, I'll tell you what, what was going on. Um, I knew that there were some pirates who were going to come and steal all those fishing boats. So, so I sank them to put them out of the reach of the pirates. And, and you know, when the tide goes out, you know, the, the fishermen will be able to recover the boats and patch them up and they will have them. You know, so I saved I saved the fishermen from having their boats stolen. And, and as for the young man, he was just about to kill both of his parents. And so, you know, I stopped, I stopped this crime. So uh, this, is, this is to say that, that there are higher moralities that, um, that can't 
simply fall under a codified law because because they have to do with subtle situations or, or, or with knowledge that that is not common. You know, so this is a possibility. Um, on the other hand, if somebody says, you know, I'm following the Sharia and then isn't, then th that's that that's not quite the same situation. You know, so but so that that's a possibility, too. But, you know, you, it, 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 every spiritual teacher who wants to do whatever he wants uh, will, if, if he knows, if he knows about that story, he'll invoke that story. Well, you see, the reason Rajneesh did all this stuff was because he had a higher knowledge of, you know, and so, so we've sort of learned to not trust that, that excuse, you know, and yet it's still possible. You know? So we have to admit the possibility. So. Well, let's come back for a moment to the, philosophy of traditionalism or perennialism. I'm trying to understand it. And one of the terms that I notice in your writings and the writings of others is the use of the term metaphysics to imply that there is some certainty around metaphysics. Because I think in traditional academic philosophy, metaphysics is usually regarded as, well, we have no way to resolve the disputes between different metaphysical uh, approaches. But I'm under the impression yeah. that traditionalists feel differently, that you do have a way that metaphysics begins with God. Yeah, it begins with God. And... Um in terms of, and of course, the word metaphysics is used in academia sometimes to mean just the, the basic assumptions upon which any way of thinking is based. Well, the metaphysics of this worldview is X, whether it's what traditional traditionalists would call metaphysics at all. It's just, you know. um, well, let, let's just say that there are certain doctrines, um, metaphysical or mystical doctrines, which are truly identical across very different traditions. Now, in, in Hinduism, um, and the Vedanta, Vedantic Hinduism, you have a, con a conception of uh, Saguna Brahman and Nirguna Brahman. Brahman is the absolute reality. Saguna Brahman is the absolute reality with attributes. You know, we say, let's use the word God. We say God, God is all-wise, all-loving, all-knowing, you know, all-powerful. Yeah. And then there's Nirguna Brahman, which is Brahman without attributes, which is, you know, beyond form and beyond uh, explanation in terms of form. Uh, now, this, this is strictly the same, I would say, as in Sufism. Uh, you have Allah, who would be... Um, would correspond to Saguna Brahman, Allah, you know, the synthesis of all the names of God is Allah. And then as opposed to Al-Zat, A-L-D-H-A-T, which is the word for the unknowable divine essence. So Al-Zat and Allah are the same as Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. In Christianity, the terms are God for Saguna Brahman, uh, Godhead for Nirguna Brahman, um, and you, you, you would say in, in Kabbalah, for example, perhaps the, the, the tree of the Sephiroth, you know, the, the tree of life, together would constitute Saguna Brahman, whereas the Ein Sof would be Nirguna Brahman. 
So you, you, you have you have this and the, these doctrines are strictly equivalent. I'm sorry. They're just the same thing with different names. Whereas there's so many elements, necessary elements in the different traditions, which are different and irreconcilable. Like, you know, in Islam, um, God is one God, is, you know, God forbid that he should take we should say that he should take to himself a son. You know, and uh, God is, is, is purely one and, uh, you know, there is no son of God. And, and, and so I mean, Christianity does not go along with that. There is a son of God who, who is of one essence with the father. So th- th- these are irreconcilable, although in my book, I go a little, may, maybe this is, is not quite kosher, but I go a little farther toward reconciling them than maybe is anybody would consider to be legitimate, but I did my best. But yet, and then I, I get to the point and I say, well, but really they can't be reconciled. You know, the, the Muslims must start and, and, and pursue their spiritual life from the standpoint of the absolute unity of God, whereas Christians must uh, uh, pursue their spiritual lives from the standpoint of the Trinity of God, which is also unity. You know, God, it's not three gods, but yet Trinitarianism. Now, there is a Trinitarianism in Islam, but you find it in Ibn Arabi, and it's not quite the same as the Christian Trinitarianism. And so it's, you know, one could say this. If God is strictly one, perfectly one, and if, as the Sufis say, God is truly the only being, then God must be God as he is in himself, beyond our knowledge. That would be the Father. God, he must be God uh within, as the center of the human form, the center of the human heart, the essence of the human being, because he's the essence of everything, he's the essence of the human being, and the human being is the synthesis of all the names of God. So that's God the Son. And then he, he must be the power that is, that is behind all manifestation in the universe. You know, the essence of everything and the power that flows through everything. This is God the Holy Spirit. Okay, you can do that. But it's not going to be efficacious to say, well, all I see, it's all, you know, I mean, didn't Bede Griffith say something like that? You know, uh, it, it's, all, it's, all, uh, it's all the same doctrine. It's not all the same doctrine. You, 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 you have to really respect the integrity and, and the uniqueness of the doctrine that you yourself are following or will not do you the slightest good. So, you know, there's always a tension between seeing the similarities and, and, and in some cases the identities of doctrines between the different traditions and saying, but look, you can't amalgamate these traditions without creating a mishmash that will uh, essentially deconstruct all of them because you, you have a tendency in, in interfaith movement to, to soft pedal doctrines that, that will um, offend, you know, the other religions. And so all the religions you know, uh, de- deny their most characteristic doctrines in order to try to befriend each other. And, and uh, th- this is unfortunate because everybody loses when that's done. So. so you see a real difference between the ecumenical movement and the perennialist movement. Well, um, yeah, I do. I do. I, I think the perennialist movement, and I should say perennialism is a more general term than the traditionalist school. It's associated also in some people's minds with Aldous Huxley and Gerald Hurd, 
who also did some work in, in, in looking at, at similar doctrines between different traditions. So perennialism, you know, l- l- let me just quickly say perennialism to, a, to define it is the belief that the truth of, of God to humanity and the universe has always been known by the human race perennially from day one and has been transmitted through the generations, through perhaps millions of years, um, sometimes openly in a way that everybody could believe and sometimes uh, clandestinely through small groups of initiates, but in any way it's been transmitted and it's always been known. And what it includes is the knowledge that even though all the religions primordially in the ancient past spring from the primordial revelation, which is the revelation of the human form itself on earth. Um, this is why the Muslims say that Adam was the first prophet. Uh, uh, at, at, this, at the same time, um, when the tree of religion branched, it branched into various revealed religions. And so you can say that God has sent more than one religion uh, with his seal of approval in order to uh, give human race a, a path back to union with him. And so there's not just one true religion. And actually, uh, some of these religions may even be operative spiritually at the same time. So you accept that. That's what you accept uh, from the perennialist standpoint that is uh, that could be agreed with uh, by the ecumenical movement or the interfaith movement. But that's, that's almost all that can be agreed because the, the perennialists at their best will say, you know, and, and the orthodoxy of each one of these traditions is the essence of it. And that is the essence of, of the path of the people following that religion. You know, it's not saying we have one big, if we take a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and we see that the unities and maybe we can have one big religion and nobody will fight anymore. That didn't work out with globalism, did it? We had one big global system. And now because we have the war in Ukraine, everything is going to hell at once because we had this global unity, which was established up to a point, but could not be maintained. And so now, now we see how that's not the best idea. Yeah, in your writings, you, you seem to suggest that one of the enemies of uh, traditionalism or perennialism is, I think, what you refer to as global elitism. And another one of the, I think you would describe this as an enemy, is um, postmodernism. Yeah, well, postmodernism, um, postmodernism uh, accepts, and th- this is what you'll find in academia now, if perennialism is losing influence in academia. Uh, it's because we're now, you know, the, the postmodernists have taken over the academies. And for them, you know, the, the particular distinctions between, between ideas, between folklore, between doctrines, between religions and religious practices are, are, are the foreground. And, and the unit, the unity, supposed unity of all these things is simply to, to, to many postmodernists an illusion. So it's, it, it, it turns perennialism on its head. And, you know, this is good because th- th- there was a tendency, which, which you would see in, in, you know, what I call promiscuous liberal ecumenism of soft peddling all the differences. And this was destructive 
to the religions. But to say all the differences are absolute means, and, and, and when you add to that, each religion believes it's the only true religion, this is the recipe for universal war, right? So, you know, there, there needs to be at least a theory of perennialism that does not fall into either of those problems of, of, of weakening all the religions by saying there are no really different real differences between them or absolutizing the differences and calling for total conflict. You know, so uh, this is why I think perennialism, you know, the right kind of perennialism is very important in the world today. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, what, what uh, Alexander Dugan, who, who it seems to be true, emerging as true that he is or has been Putin's brain, because a lot of what Putin is saying now comes right out of Dugan's books. You know, the, the, the destruction of, of the uh, of the unipolar world that that that's Dugan's rhetoric right there, you know. And what what Dugan is very much a, a postmodernist. Now, his idea, you know, of how, how to impose postmodernism politically is he says, well, you know, we'll support all every religion, every possible uh, um, modulation of belief in anything re remotely resembling religion, as long as it has an ethnic uh, ethno religious group that believes that. We, we, we will say, we support your, your, your distinction. We support your separateness. We support your, 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 your tradition. And so if Dugan had his way, there would be a large Russian empire, which would allow every, um, every uh, shade of religious belief, you know, to, to have its own community and its own, you know, internal autonomy and like this, but they would be absolutely separated from each other. Um, because he doesn't believe in unity because <laughs> he's a postmodernist. The only unity that a postmodernist believes in is a unity of power. I remember Houston Smith said that in a lecture once. He says, if the unity of truth is denied, uh, you know, which, which is a, a major doctrine of, of scholastic philosophy and, and of perennialism, you know, that, that ultimately the truth is one, ultimately God is one. Uh, if, if the unity of, of truth is denied, we, we will have no recourse but to create unity based only on power. And that's, that, that's, what, uh, that's what Dugan wants. You know, it, it's, it's a little bit like the way the Ottoman Empire was set up with something called millets, which are, you know, semi-autonomous ethno-religious communities, which, which have their own, you know, the Christians have their own patriarch and this other people have this. And, and um, the, 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 there would be a great deal of freedom and autonomy within those traditions, within those uh, communities, as long as they didn't step outside the bounds. I mean, I mean, it's, 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 it's every religion to its own ghetto, you know, and not only that, but, but the actual leaders would be appointed by the imperial state. You know, which was certainly true under the Soviets uh, when it came to, to uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and probably the other religions. You know, right now, the, the, uh, as far as I know, the religions that are established under the Russian Constitution are Eastern Orthodox Christianity, not Catholicism. That's for Poles, you know, and not uh, uh, Evangelical Christianity, but Eastern Orthodox Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, 
and uh, shamanism. So those are established, but uh, nobody's supposed to proselytize. Don't go out and spread the doctrine because that's considered to be a kind of, you know, invasion of of a neighboring state. You know, don't do that. Stay within your ghetto. And strangely enough, the other place I ran into this attitude, this proposal almost, was in the United Religions Initiative, which is the most liberal you know, omni-tolerant religious movement that ever existed. And yet, since it accepted all the religions, it had to say, but no religion is to proselytize another. This was beginning to be talked about in that world. So so anyway, this is Dugan's idea of, of, of um, what would you say, ecumenism or, or, or of a multi-religious um, empire uh, is entirely postmodern. It's, it's postmodernism uh, turned in, 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 into a political imperative. Um, so what I'm saying is that my idea of perennialism, which I more or less got from Richard Schumann, my problem is he didn't follow his own ideas in some cases. And in some cases, he, he said other things which contradicted them seriously, you know. But nonetheless, I learned it mostly from him as to say um, that uh, uh, we, we, have, we have to accept not just the, the uniqueness, but the autonomy of the major world religions, of, of, of the revealed religions. And um, not try to amalgamate them in, in, into one shapeless mishmash, not absolutize them to the point where they all must fight each other, which is what actually you want to talk about the global elites. The, the, the idea of a shapeless religious unity where, where all the doctrines of the religions are soft pedaled and, 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 and eroded. That's more or less what the global elites want to do domestically. And by domestically, I mean in in Europe, Western Europe and North America. What they do outside of that framework with what I would call the remnant of neocolonialism is they they weaken the religions in, in another way, which is by exacerbating conflict between them. I remember... Um, when our our, our um, Muslim peace movement, the uh, Covenants Initiative, made its debut here in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, I was at the Bilal Mosque with um, our um, director, um, Dr. John Andrew Morrow, and I was talking about the tendency of, of the global elites to weaken the religious um the autonomy of the various religions by causing conflict between them. And there's someone who spoke up and he must have been from Pakistan because he had the accent of the Indian subcontinent. He said, yes, you know, I I understand what you're saying because in in my hometown, you know, in uh, Pakistan, presumably, uh, there would be nights when uh, persons unknown would would throw slaughtered cows into Hindu temples and slaughtered pigs into mosques, you know? And then when the sun sun came up, uh, it it was a virtual certainty that there would be Hindu-Muslim riots the next day. 
No one thought that there was somebody else out there trying to create the Hindu-Muslim riots who could not have been either a Hindu or a Muslim, but must have been operating, you know, on, on some other, uh, with some other imperative, with some other direction. Um, so, you know, th- there is this tendency to, to create deliberate conflicts between the religions to weaken them. But that, that's what the globalist elites do outside of their domestic framework, which is Western Europe and North America. So um, th- this is why I consider the perennialism as I understand it, which I learned mostly from Schoen, is going to prevent promiscuous liberal ecumenism, which is one problem, conflict between absolutized religious doctrines, you know, which, which are mutually exclusive and have to fight. That's another problem. Or uh, Dugan's idea of, of, of creating a, an empire where every religious uh, uh, you know, sh- shade of, of belief gets its own ghetto, but they mustn't relate to each other and they mustn't proselytize each other. All of these are, are the destruction of religion. So that's why perennialism is important in a world like this. And the other thing is, uh, according to postmodernism, perennial, uh, uh, religious beliefs uh, don't have any objective reference. They're not talking about anything real in the spiritual world. They're just ta- they are the way a particular group that identifies uh, with a particular religion, and, and it's often an ethnic group, a way a particular group will um, talk about itself, will, will understand itself, will attempt to understand itself through these doctrines. So the doctrines are int- entirely self-referential to the group. They don't refer to anything beyond the group. In other words, they don't refer to any God. We're not talking about God. We're just talking about the way groups see each other. We're talking about collective psychology of this group or that. So if, if that's all religious doctrine is, this is essentially atheism because there is no objective reference. There's no God. There's just, you know, we, the, 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 these are our totems. These are our gang colors, man, you know, and, and that, that's all there is to religion. That, that's how destructive um, postmodernism is to, to true religion. So perennialism of the right kind can stand against that tendency as well. Well, one of the other problems you've raised uh, is in pointing out that traditionally, according to traditionalist metaphysics, we live in a very dark age. The Kali Yuga, uh, one of my friends refers to it as the dark age of scientism. I think you yeah. probably would agree with that. Nothing, nothing to add to that. Scientism is one of the problems. Yeah. Psychologism. Uh, and, and now we have the, the, the age of, 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 of universal ideological fanaticism, where to the degree that we don't believe in God, we have to believe in something. So we adopt an ideology and are willing to kill and die for that ideology, no matter how narrow it may be. You know, that's me, that's us, that's what we believe in. You know, and that, that, that this comes from... A, an erosion of sort of the almost instinctive belief in the reality of God that, that, that was in Western civilization, even if people were not super church-going Christians or super synagogue-going Jews, there was the sense, you know, the man upstairs, you know, you, you feel the reality, the common reality of, of, of the spiritual 
world. And that, that reality, that, that instinct is getting eroded. So people, people develop idols because you have to, you have to worship something like Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody, you know, and, and since they're not serving the Lord, they're serving one kind of devil or another. Well, you point out that in in this dark age, uh, we have the internet. All of the religions are pretty much online, at least thousands of them. And it's evident to everybody that uh, these doctrines are incompatible with each other. So uh, the idea that there's a, a general malaise or disillusionment of uh, religion in general or the idea of God uh, is, is rather pervasive in our culture today, making yeah, it unique. I mean, it just came out that, that, you know, what, 10% fewer people than a few years ago now believe in God in the United States. Yeah. And... Um, well, yeah, I mean, th th this is the problem be because the all the religious doctrines are known. The religions are thrown up against each other uh, culturally through immigration and whatever else. Um, we, we need we need a sense that 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 you know that, that there's a reason for the difference in the doctrines, and yet the ultimate reality we're all talking about is the same. You know, that's without that, people will. You know, say well. Well, if both of these religions say their absolute truth, and if they say different things, well, to hell with this. You know, I don't. I don't need my. I don't need to be jerked around by this craziness. I don't need to believe any of this stuff. Forget it. And then people either become atheists or they, you know, become spiritual but not religious. You know, which is, which is something that's actually, um, part and parcel of. You know this 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 new interest in near death experiences, which people uh, are having because of advances in medical science that can be brought back to life after going much farther into the death process than ever was possible before. But now they say, "Well, I saw the truth directly." Some people come back and and it confirms their religion. Other people come back and say, "I saw that God doesn't care about religion," you know, because I saw the truth itself, naked, not through all this religious doctrine. You know, well. You know, I, I, I understand. I, I, I have a certain sympathy for, for that, for that reaction. And yet they probably don't know their religious doctrine very well. You know, no, but the, 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 the depths of, of the religious doctrines of, of Islam, Christianity, uh, and other religions, uh, the, the, I'm thinking particularly of Islam and Christianity are not being taught very well at all these days. There are plenty of Muslims running around this country who say they're Muslims because they're Arabs. And that's what they think Muslim means. Oh, I don't go to mosque or anything, but I'm a Muslim because, you know, my name is Ali. You know, that's right. And, and um, you know, and, and there's a general kind of Christianity which really has no appreciable theology to it. But it's, you know, it's, it's a belief in, you know, if, if all you have to do is, is accept Jesus as your personal savior once, you know, you know, in, in, a, in a moment of, uh, of um, a moment of faith and you, you think that constitutes a complete spiritual life, you, you're going to be disappointed somewhere down the line. There's more to religion than that. We started by talking about antinomianism. Uh, the idea that there's something about the authenticity of the individual that transcends the rules of of a group and 
Fritjof Schuen seemed to embody that to some extent. That's a little different question, really, because antinomianism, as I use it, which is generally a, a pejorative term, a negative term, is uh, it's a pretension. I am of a higher spiritual caste, not I'm an individual and and I'm not reducible to any to any tradition because I am myself and like everybody else is themselves. You know, that's one thing, you know. The antinomianism that says, because I understand these things, I am of a higher caste and the law doesn't apply to me, that's a pretension. Whereas the, the, the thing of, of the individual is, 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 is irreducible. You know, I mean, they're, they're, the Sufis say there, is, there are many spiritual, as many spiritual paths as there are human souls. And the Hindus talk about this, your, your swadharma, your, your own particular spiritual truth and spiritual way. And for a traditionalist, the challenge is to make a synthesis between that individual way and a larger tradition with all the resources and, 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 the, and, and the understanding and, and, the, and the grace that is in that tradition. Uh, the, the, the thing is, you know, I, I often say, you know, Nietzsche challenged people to, to go their own individual way and almost, you know, create their own myth or something like this. Or some of the Jungians talking about create our own myth. Well, that's, that's a big job to create your own myth. Not everybody can do that. And, and it, it ends up too often to be just a myth of me, you know, which is fine. But, you know, it, or maybe it's not so fine. Is, is it just another kind of narcissism? I don't know. But the th thing is, you can't just say, well, whatever I am doesn't count. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I used to, I used to be an individualist, but now I'm going to go over and believe in this, in this tradition and pour myself blindly into the mold of this tradition and take on the form of this tradition. And if I'm American, an American Muslim, I'm going to grow a beard. This beard started out as a hippie beard. So it's, it just, it, it, Islam inherited this beard, right? But I didn't grow it for the purpose of Islam. You know, so I'll grow a beard and I'll wear a little white hat and, and, and I'll, I'll speak with my, finger pointing upwards, you know, and, uh, you know, the, this, this doesn't work. You, you have to bring the, to you have to know yourself insofar as that's possible and bring the totality of, of who you are to the tradition that is calling you. And th there's going to be a tension between that tradition and, and your individuality. And that tension can be very fruitful if you know how to play it and, 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 and you, you have, you have, uh, patience and stamina and, 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 you know, you don't despair when the contradictions seem too intense because the religions are great storehouses of, of grace and, and wisdom, which it's, it's a, it, it would be a disaster if we lose them and can no longer avail ourselves of them. Well, Fritjof Schuen, if I understand correctly, at one point wrote, and other traditionalists agree, if you're on a spiritual path, it needs to be one of religious orthodoxy. Well, th that's, that's what he said, but is that what he did? That's the, well, one of the questions. But yeah, that is what he said. And in broad terms, and I mean, and this, this was said even more explicitly by Titus Burkhardt. He, you know, he, there was some letter he wrote to a seeker and he said, 
The thing is, salvation is only to be found within, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and you can't just join Hinduism because you have to be born into the one of the castes, one of the varnas, and uh, it would be true of Taoism, but Taoism is, is, is lost, you know, since communist China, or you can't find it anymore. And, um, and of course, you know, in, in, in broad terms, I think that's pretty good advice. But then Fritjof Schumann would always say, and yet the spirit bloweth where it listeth. The spirit can light anywhere on, on anything and on anyone. That's true, too. You know, I mean, you can't you cannot look at someone and say, since you you, you are outside of, of of these these great religious frameworks, then well, you're lost. I'm sorry, you can't do that because we don't know what what, what God is has planned for us and and what He has given to someone else. We don't know. So so you have to say, you know, it's 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 like generally generally good advice to say. Follow the, the, the major religions, but, but get to their depths if you can. But be, it, that's a generality. It's a necessary generality, but that's not, that's not the whole story. I have spoken to people who have a mystical inclination, who have been involved in the ecumenical movements, for example, dialogues between Christians and Muslims. And what I hear from them consistently is that the mystics, those who are into the esoteric traditions of whatever culture, uh, have more in common with each other than the orthodox of each tradition. This is true. I would just, I, I just wouldn't say make a distinction between the mystics and the orthodox, because orthodoxy is certain, certainly there's nothing more orthodox than mysticism, uh, as long as you don't use it to create the heterodox doctrine, which is something else. But you know, the, the, the mystical centers of the, of the different traditions are a lot closer to each other than, you know, the, 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 the minutiae of the Torah or or, or the Sharia, or of different practices and different things, you know, when, when, when the, the language of the mystics tends to be almost, you know, to, to, to get toward a kind of unanimity. Um, what I say is, though, the, the, the major doctrine of the traditionalist school, if you can say there's a major doctrine, is called the transcendent unity of religions. Now, we can understand what the unity of religions is because uh, um, promiscuous um, liberal ecumenism can say, well, let's let let all the religions come together and dialogue and 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 create a greater unity, and then there will be no conflict, which didn't turn out to be true. Um, uh, but what does it mean? It's a transcendent unity. What's interesting is the doctrines of the different religions become come closer and closer together the more you get to the to what the mystics are saying the more you get to the mystical centers of of the doctrines i mean meister eckhart can say things that that could have come from ibn arabi or from him, or from the vedanta this is true you get closer they get closer and closer <laughs> but the interesting thing is they never become completely uh unified they never become completely unanimous there's always a subtle difference in perspective. And what this proves is that the unity of the religions is truly transcendent. The religions are united in God, the mystery of God. They're not united in some, some 
somebody's idea of here's the universal theology we can draw from all the different beliefs. But you're united only in God. So um, I think that the, the fact that the doctrines become closer together, the closer you get to the mystical centers of the religion, but they never completely meet in, in the world of form is another way of, of expressing or proving the validity of the transcendent unity of religions, not the worldly unity of religions, the transcendent. Well, I kind of think that the same principle would apply to the individual, that is self-consistency. You, you've criticized Schuon for not being consistent with what he himself has said, but in, in a way that's true of every human being. Yeah, I, I mean, or every human being is going to be confronted with apparently necessary inconsistencies that this doesn't absolve us from, from trying to reach the consistency, right? You know, and, and yet, yeah, I, I mean, the, the spiritual life and life in itself is complex and filled with contradictions. And, and the struggle with those contradictions in the name of a unity that, that we intuit but may not be able to express on all levels our being is a big part of the spiritual life in itself. You know, the, the contradictions are the, are, are, are the fuel that, that, that if we don't lose our faith, we'll, you know, uh, energize this in the spiritual life to come closer to unity if we can. Well, I think that's a very important point and a good point to uh, close our discussion on today, Charles. Okay, let, let, me, let me just make one announcement. My uh, publisher, James Whitmore, who published my book, which, which I am selling now, it is available, it's called um, The Way Forward for Perennialism, after the antinomianism of antinomianism of Fritjof Schoen, and um, uh, in, in which which I, I I have 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 great praise for Fritjof Schoen, and also point out some places where I don't think he you know I, if he was alive I would ask him what did you mean here <laughs> so now we, we we just have to ask his followers but anyway um, Whitmore has. Uh, defined my book as something in what he calls the Dialogos series, where he imagines that some people will disagree with things I've said in that book because the, the people who, who you know follow Fritjof Schoen's you know who are in his Sufi Tarika and who follow his doctrines to the letter um, tend to be very vociferous in defending him on many levels and defending his doctrines. And this is what we, uh, what we hope will happen. This, this, is, this is what we, we encourage. Uh, it would be wonderful. It would be fruitful if people could come forward and say, well, I think Upton is full of you-know-what because, you know, he said this about Schoen and no. Schoen, he doesn't understand the sheikh. The sheikh meant this, not that. I want to hear from these people. We want to hear from these people because Wetmore has said that if we get enough, uh, you know, high quality writing uh, of this level, we'll publish another book. You know, um, a, a, a book of, of of book of disagreements and agreements with with, with my book. You know, because it, I think um, it's important. Because luckily, I I, I recently found a. Um, 
uh, WhatsApp group called Spiritual Lessons. And it has a lot of followers of Fritjofsson, you know, uh, e- either those who knew him or those who were following him later just through his books. But these people have gotten to the point where they don't consider him to be infallible. They're very much, you know, he, he, he is very much their, their, their influence and, you know, his ideas are the ideas that are mostly discussed, although they become much more Islamic in form than he was, which is one of the things that, that was provided after his death by Sayyid Hussein Nasser and also by Martin Lenz. It's just make, make it more Islamic because he was pretty syncretistic. You know, he, he, he used the, the Lakota Sioux Indian invocation of Wakantanka instead of the Muslim call to prayer, you know, and that's getting pretty far into syncretism. So, so, you know, people he's been made is his stream has been made more Muslim after his passing, but, um, that they don't they don't take him as as uh, as infallible. They, they they take him as extremely valuable. So I, so this this is what we hope because if, if if he's made infallible, then his doctrines are sealed, and there's nothing can come from. Whereas if you say yeah, this is wonderful what he said, but on the other hand, what about this? Then we continue to learn, and and the amazing wisdom that was pouring through Fritjof Schoen will be able to continue. Uh, I remember um, J.G. Bennett, you know, the uh, Gurdjieff follower. <laughs> he had a great thing that he said. He says, when, when the master passes on, his followers divide into three groups. Uh, uh, one group are, 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 are the people who, who said, I'm glad the old goat has kicked the bucket. Now I can do whatever I want. Uh, the other group are, are, are the tr- every word of the master and and also like his eyeglasses and his dentures under glass, you know, so everything should be as it was at the moment, you know, because his doctrines were perfect. But uh, there's a third group, says Bennett, which are are called the near heretics. And he said it's the near heretics that carry on the the teaching of the master, you know, that, that are willing to disagree and yet not willing to reject you know the truth that came through through, through this this teacher, and and uh, that's where I hope we can get now. I hope we don't lose the great uh, wisdom that came through Fortrashun because we we have denied ourselves the right to criticize, because um, you know th- that would be a great loss to everyone. Now you've criticized Shuin for being uh, say I think the word is syncretistic. Yeah, and I don't know that we've defined that word well enough for our viewers. Well, it, it, it's like spiritual eclecticism. Uh, uh, you know, you, you take a little bit from this religion, a little bit from that religion, and put it together. And actually, the, the, the religion that is probably the most syncretistic in known history was Manichaeism, which had elements from Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Buddhism. You know, and that was a truly syncretistic religion, which means it it, it all the other religions hated it because, you know, it relativized them. And so they ultimately did away with it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but actually I, I wrote a letter to Schoen in Bloomington, Indiana once. And I said, because he published an article in, uh, um, I think it was called The Quest. It was it was a, a magazine of the Theosophical Society. And I know that, that one of the great, uh, you know, uh, Rene Guinon considered the Theosophists to, to, to be 
you know, a, a big part of the counter initiation. And, mm-hmm. and he, he, his first, one of his first books w- was called The Theosophy, the History of a Pseudo-Religion. And so now here's Schoen is, is publishing in a, in a Theosophical Society magazine. So I wrote him and I said, <clears throat> well, what about this, you know? Um, and I, I asked him, what are you doing, you know, is what you're doing syncretism? And he didn't write back with his signature, but I got a typed letter back, which apparently was dictated to a, a secretary or something like that. And it's, he said, uh, oh, what we are doing here is, synch- is syncretism of a kind, but not the syncretism of the Theosophical Society. So that, that, that was the answer, which I, I take as coming from him. So if so, then, then, then he copped to the fact they were doing that. Whereas what I got from everywhere else, and I don't know where I got it, I mean, all the tradi- traditionalists I knew, um, you know, were, 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 who were basically Sayyidah Sain Nasser, James Kutzinger, uh, Rama Kumaraswamy, and Houston Smith, and the people associated with them, the whole idea was syncretism is disallowed. We don't do that. You know, we, we, we hold to the orthodoxy of, of the discrete faiths. So that's another thing that, that, that was, was taught. And I, who, I thought I learned that from Schumann. And then I read it more carefully, you know, or I listened to what was, see what was going on. I said, where did I get that? That's what we all believe. So anyway, um, that, that's another one of, the, one of the many contradictions that, that should be fruitful for dialogue. Well, I'm delighted that we're having this dialogue. Uh, I don't consider myself a traditionalist by any means. I'm probably more secular than that, but I love these conversations with you, Charles. I hope that we have more of them. You'll be welcome back over and over again on New Thinking Aloud, as far as I'm concerned. Well, great. I mean, um, you know, the other... uh, Actually, I was looking through my writing. You know, I accidentally sent you that book. Um, yeah. The, the uh, um, uh, Metaphysics for Hard Times, which I hope to get published soon, you know. And I was looking in there. Th- there are things that I've written about eschatology and about, you know, the uh, life after death. Maybe I'll try to put those together and see if I actually have a theory that I don't realize that I have, you know. What do I really believe about that? Well, that would be a very interesting conversation. So I look forward to that and others with you, Charles. Thank you so much for being with me today. Glad to be here, as always. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.